This morning I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. But the gospel that he preached is called the gospel of the kingdom. Here in our fellowship as we are seeking the heart of God, the mind of God, and trying to understand His purposes for us and the direction that He wants, there's been a lot of emphasis on what God wants us to be. God has been searching our hearts, and I believe God has been teaching us, and God has been showing us that His nature is mercy, His character is forgiveness, He's tender, He's very, very compassionate God, very compassionate. And that we need to be love incarnate. The greatest testimony that we are ever going to give to an unbelieving world is for them to look upon us and say, My, how they love one another. That's the witness and that is the testimony that the world needs to see. And there's been great emphasis on that. But this morning, the emphasis is what are we to share? What are we to speak? What are we to proclaim? The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that Jesus preached was the good news of the kingdom, especially to the poor. Jesus said in these verses that the time is fulfilled. Something has been waiting to be fulfilled for a long time. And Jesus says the time for fulfillment is now. And in his heart and in his mind he's going way back even to the book of Genesis. As far back as Abraham when God made covenant with Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. But what I want to emphasize today is that the gospel that Jesus preached is the message of the kingdom. Let's catch that phrase. The message of the kingdom. Whenever you read in the Gospels a summary of what Jesus did, it says He visited the villages, He went about everywhere teaching and preaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, and He preached the Gospel of the kingdom. That's what summarizes the preaching of Jesus. It is the message concerning the kingdom. And when Jesus sent his disciples out to preach, his twelve disciples or his seventy that he sent out, the instructions was to teach and preach that the kingdom has arrived. What does it mean, the kingdom? To miss the message of the kingdom in the Gospels is to miss Jesus himself. If we don't hear his message about a kingdom, we miss everything that Jesus had to teach. 
that's such an important, it's the predominant message that Jesus gives in all his preaching is that the kingdom. It's constantly on his lips. It's the ongoing subject of his preaching and his teaching. The word kingdom is found 49 times in the Gospel of Matthew, 15 times in the Gospel of Mark, and 41 times in the Gospel of Luke. And in the words of Jesus, he uses phrases about the kingdom that are unique to him that you can't find anywhere else in the New Testament. The phrase, the violent take it by force. They seize the kingdom. The phrase, enter the kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom. I give to you the keys of the kingdom. He that is least in the kingdom. He that is greatest in the kingdom. The whole theme of the kingdom was central. It was the central message of of what Jesus had to preach. Was the message of the kingdom. So we need to ask ourselves a question, what is the kingdom that Jesus was referring to? What is the center of his heart, the center of his message, and the center of his gospel? What is the kingdom? For our definition, let's understand that the kingdom is not a place. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not referring to a place. What he is referring to is... A time. The kingdom of heaven is not about a geographical location. The kingdom of heaven is about a time. From the Old Testament perspective before Jesus, when they thought about kingdom, this is what they thought. They thought about a time in the future when God will finally exercise his kingly authority over the whole of created order. When God would exercise his kingly authority over the whole created order. It's the time when God would arrive on the scene and he would once and for all and forever displace the powers of darkness. He would overturn the effects of sin, disease, demonic activity. He'd overturn even death itself with his dynamic power and he would bring an end to this present evil age that seems out of control. God's going to wrap up history. He's going to throw away this present world and he establishes a kingdom of justice and righteousness over his entire creation where sin and sickness and the devil don't even exist. That's the kingdom. And when we say the kingdom is not a place, but it's a time, it means that everybody was looking forward to this time when God would show up in his kingly power and destroy this present evil world in a climatic fashion and establish righteousness and justice. That's what the term kingdom means. Now, In the Gospels, it's never a question of where is the kingdom. It's never a question of what is the kingdom. But the question in the Gospels is always when does it happen? Not where, not what, but when. And Jesus taught that the kingdom doesn't come with observation. There were times when the disciples thought that the kingdom was about to immediately appear and even into the book of Acts before Pentecost they asked Jesus, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, 
What he is saying is that God is now making good on all those expectations. Amen. That God is making good on all those expectations. But in order to understand the message that we're supposed to preach to a lost and a dying world, what is the content of the gospel, we have to understand what Jesus is talking about when he says the word kingdom. The gospel is the message that the king has arrived. Come on. It's the message that the king has arrived. We have turned the gospel, we have reduced the gospel to a personal plan of salvation by which people can get to heaven if they say a prayer. Now that's part of the story, but that is not the entire gospel. The gospel is the message that the king has arrived. Amen. And that's what Paul preached, and that's what Peter preached, and that's certainly what Jesus preached. The king has arrived. The kingdom is being made manifest. Now to understand how this works, you have to embrace the entire Old Testament story because a lot of people have a version of the gospel that doesn't even involve the Old Testament. Moses is not even part of the gospel. King David is not part of the gospel. The Old Testament prophets are not part of the gospel. How can that be? There are people who don't understand why Jesus has to be the Messiah to atone for our sin. Don't, don't even grasp that. There are some people who even say that Jesus did not preach the gospel. That only came after the cross and after the resurrection and after the Spirit. Poor Jesus, he never preached the gospel. Because you can't read justification by faith in the lips of Jesus. Strange. The message that Jesus preached is that the king has arrived. Oh, shout amen or something. The king has arrived. This is wonderful. Because to understand what's on the lips and the heart of Jesus, he runs through the entire Old Testament story to get to this statement that the king has finally arrived. You see, way back in creation, back in the Garden of Eden, God placed two image bearers who were to be in his image. And who through that being in his image were to exercise kingly authority to represent God and to govern the world on his behalf. Way back in the Garden of Eden. And this task of representing God and this task of ruling and having dominion for his sake was grossly distorted when they rebelled against the good command of God. And a lot of our presentations of Gospels begin with have man fell into sin and then we skip over the entire Old Testament story and go to the cross of Jesus as if the Old Testament story isn't part of the Gospel message. You see, the Gospel doesn't just skip straight into Jesus. When Stephen preached in Acts 7 and he preached the Gospel, he told the whole history of Israel. When Paul preached the gospel in Acts 13, he preached the whole story of Old Testament Israel. It's an integral part. The gospel is this, that to restore his image 
and to restore man being his governmental power in the world, God began by choosing one person, you know him by the name of Abraham. And then through his descendants, God was going to create a corporate people. And we've been looking at this in Exodus. He's to create a corporate people who corporately together would express his character, express his nature, reflect his image in the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's people were to embody his nature as a corporate people. They were to demonstrate his redemptive power by their behavior. Their responsibility was to make God known to all the families of the earth, to represent God to all nations, and to redemptively govern his world. That was the call upon the descendants of Abraham the people of God who can enter into covenant with God there on Mount Sinai. That was their purpose. To rule on his behalf for the sake of all the families of the earth. And in the history of Israel, as time progressed, King David became a very prominent part of this story because the kingdom was so powerful and so great in the time of King David. And after King David, the people looked back upon and longed, can we just go back to the glory days? Of, of King David. And Psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 were written whenever a descendant of David was crowned to be a king over the land, but it was always a prophetic of what that final king, when he appears, would be like. Psalm 2 and Psalm 72. But after the time of David, as we work ourselves through Old Testament history, the prophets that came after King David, when they thought of this day of the Lord, this kingdom that was to come, they spoke both in terms of judgment and salvation. And one of the reasons a lot of the prophets spoke in terms of judgment was very simple, because Israel had failed to fulfill its job description. Israel had failed to keep covenant with God. It did, Israel did not fulfill its role to be a kingdom of priests for the sake of the rest of the world. What happened to Israel is what happened to a lot of people is they fell into the trap of thinking they were the object of God's blessing instead of the vehicle of God's blessing. Did you catch that? They fell into the trap thinking they were the object of God's blessing instead of the vehicle of God's blessing. They did not take the blessing of God to all the families of the earth. The house of prayer, the temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, became their own private possession. And so the prophets seeing that Israel failing to be that blessing to the world spoke about judgment. But those prophets also spoke about a salvation to come. There would be salvation for those who were true to God, or there would be salvation for those who through chastisement would be brought back to the Lord's purpose. And that would include all the nations, not just include Israel. And the prophets gave this message of judgment and salvation because they weren't living up to their job description. They weren't bringing the authority of God to the world. As predicted, judgment did come. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
marched against Jerusalem. You know your Old Testament history. Destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Took them into captivity. And they were seven decades in exile in Babylon. Judgment did fall. Because they didn't fulfill their purpose. The restoration 70 years later. After seven decades... God moved through Ezra. God moved through me and Nehemiah. You know the, those those books of the Bible, and there's a restoration back. But the restoration seventy years later was extremely disappointing. Only a remnant returned back, and the fact is, they returned to re- rebuild Jerusalem, but there was no gathering of all the nations. It didn't happen. The desert didn't turn into a a fruitful place like was prophesied. And there was plenty of difficult opposition constantly. And they got worn down. And even in the restoration, their faith was failing. And what happened? And that's how your Old Testament ends. That's how your Old Testament ends. And at the end of the Old Testament, there follows a long period of depressing gloom. Upon the people of God, the prophetic voice became silent for about 400 years. In other words, the Holy Spirit had become quenched, and for four centuries, there was no voice of the Lord in the land. I'm sure glad I didn't live then. A period of gloom tucked the place. The Holy Spirit had become quenched. And would be silent until the day the kingdom would properly arrive. In this 400 years period time, about 200 years before Christ and about 200 years after Christ, there arose a special type of literature in Jewish history called apocalyptic literature. You might say, what on earth is that? The book of Revelation is the one New Testament book which is called apocalyptic. It's a style of writing. It's not prophecy, but it's a style of writing that you almost use as fantasy. It uses things that can't exist. A lamb with seven horns doesn't exist. A being with seven eyes doesn't exist. It uses images of fancy to get across certain kinds of truth. But in apocalyptic literature, what they were looking for is what happened. This history was so bad that people just gave up any hope of the human race ever surviving. They had just given up hope that anything is ever going to get better. And they wanted to encourage and inspire people. So they had this kind of writing where they had the king was going to come in. And in... Uh, apocalyptic manner in powerful manner he was just going to come and angels would come to the earth and fight with men and the demons of hell would make their uh, forces on earth and they would fight with men and angels would fight with demons and and men and nations were all this is apocalyptic literature and they were looking for the mighty God to just show up and throw this present world away and kick it out and conquer it and bring in the kingdom. And that kind of literature started to be, in these 400 years of silence, started to come forward. The book of Revelation is the most famous one that you would know about in your Bible. 
But it was into this period, this void, that the Holy Spirit finally, after 400 years, began moving. And there's this supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit in the opening chapters of Luke and in the opening chapters of Matthew. And there's dreams being given. And there's angelic visitations beginning to happen. And there's prophecies being given. And there are miracles that start happening. And it seems as after 400 silent years, the Holy Spirit is starting to, to stir things. Aren't you glad when the Holy Spirit begins to stir? Begins to stir things. And then finally there's a prophetic voice that God has sent a man. You know him by the name of John the Baptist. He appears upon the scene and he breaks the prophetic silence with a startling message because for centuries after centuries after centuries that nothing has happened. They had given up on history. But he gives the startling message that the kingdom is near. The kingdom is finally about to appear. And he stirs the masses The people have to get ready. You must repent. You must get ready for the coming day of the Lord. The Messiah, though yet not recognized, is already present and He's in our midst. And He stirred the nation by the thousands with this idea that the kingdom is about to appear. All the way tracing it back to the Garden of Eden when they lost that ability to rule on behalf of God. And Israel failed in its role to rule on behalf of God. And then everyone's given up hope on history. And here comes the prophet. The kingdom is near. It's at hand. And the Messiah, I don't know who he is or where he is, but I know by the Spirit of God he's here. The kingdom is near. Boy, the people responded. They came by the thousands to be baptized by Him. From Jerusalem, from Judea, from Galilee, from the other side of the Jordan River, they came confessing their sins. Anticipation, expectations were high. And then it all fell apart because John was imprisoned. And then John was murdered. And their expectations fell to the ground. And Jesus saw the people after John had been beheaded. And he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep who just lost their pastor. Sheep without a shepherd. But, oh, don't you like that word but? Come on. But, there arose another report of another prophet speaking that same message about the kingdom. Jesus does not just say the kingdom is near. He does not just say that the kingdom is at hand, but he says the time is fulfilled. Come on. The time is fulfilled. What he is saying is through his own ministry, the scriptures are presently being fulfilled. This day are these scriptures being fulfilled in your ears. In his own person, the time of God's favor has come. The sick are being healed, the demons are being cast out, and he even sits down and eats with sinners. Can you believe it? God's unlimited mercy is being released. 
and that great final day of the kingdom has dawned. What's our gospel message? Our message is, is the king has arrived. Come on. The king has arrived. That's the gospel. The king has arrived. You see, Old Testament Israel was supposed to be, according to Isaiah, supposed to be the servant of the Lord. But unfortunately, Israel broke covenant with God. So according to Isaiah's prophecies, that which corporate Israel was supposed to be fulfilled, now God concentrates that servant role in one man. One man is going to step into the role of Old Testament Israel. All that Old Testament Israel is supposed to be is now concentrated into a son of Israel. Read the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 49, chapter 42, 42 all the way to chapter 53. The servant of the Lord. He takes on, Jesus takes on the task in which Israel failed. Jesus takes on the task of making God known. Jesus takes on the task of bringing the power and the authority of the kingdom of God to bear upon the needs of a broken world. He takes on the task of redemptively governing the world. When we call Jesus the word Christ, that word Christ means Messiah. That word Messiah, that word Christ means King. When you call him Jesus Christ, it's King Jesus. When you call him Jesus, Messiah, you are saying King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus is the Messiah, meaning he is the Christ, meaning he is the King. That God has established in Jesus Christ the kingdom of God. To call Jesus the Messiah is to recognize that He is the King, that He is qualified to, and He now brings the kingdom of God into reality. The good news is this. The King has arrived. Come on. The King has arrived. That's the message. The King has arrived. And when we're preaching the gospel, the message we are to give to the world is that the King has arrived. Amen. This story has a consummation. It's still future from where you and I, you and I live now. It's leading somewhere. But at the end of the story, God's going to get it all straightened out. Come on. It's called His appearing. And His appearing is central to the gospel message. It's not a rapture, how we're going to get out of here. It's not a preaching about how we escape, how bad the world is. I don't know about your attitude about the Lord's coming, but I'm not looking for a rapture. I'm looking for a kingdom. I'm looking when the king appears and sets everything right. I'm not afraid of this world. I'm not afraid of the way the world is going. I turn on the TV news and you know it's horrible. Is absolutely horrible. But I've got good news. Let me go on the TV and I'm going to say something that's good news. The king has arrived. 
And he is in control. And he has governed everything for the good of his people. The king has arrived. That's the good news. The whole story of the life of Jesus is to show how he entered into the role of Israel. How he assumed the responsibility of being the servant of the Lord to bring about the kingdom. Everything about his birth, he's just repeating the story of Israel. Out of Egypt have I called my son. His birth is like Israel. His life is like Israel. His teachings are like Israel. His miracles are like Israel. His actions are like Israel. His death, his burial, and his resurrection is the story of Israel. Israel retold in his own person. He has fully, completely stepped into the role of Israel to assume the responsibility of being the servant of the Lord to bring the kingdom of God to the world. So you can't understand the gospel without understanding Old Testament Israel. Because the gospel is Jesus has assumed the role of Israel. Powerful stuff. For instance, Jesus entered into the wilderness for 40 days. I preached that many times. I love that story. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. In those 40 days, he went through the exact same tests that the nation of Israel went through in the wilderness for 40 years. They failed. I got good news. Jesus conquered every temptation. And Israel failed the temptations and could not fulfill their responsibility of being a kingdom of priests for the sake of the rest of the world. But I've got good news. Jesus stepped into the role of Israel, went through the exact same test, and he conquered, and he came out ready to bring the message of the kingdom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He purposely chooses 12 disciples. Why do you think he chooses 12 and not 13? Why didn't he take 10? Why do you take 12 disciples? What do you think? Because there's 12 tribes. The new people of God. The new Israel. The new covenant. Reinventing the whole thing. Jesus' self-understanding, as he stepped into the role of Israel, to bring the mandate to completion, his own understanding, as you read about his own statements in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that his death, was for the sake of bringing in a new covenant where God's people don't need to fail. Did you catch that? He's actually going to change your heart. And he's got to put his law not on tables of stone, but he's going to put it inside you. And it's going to empower you. There's going to be divine impulse upon the tables of a brand new heart. And instead of saying like Moses, if you obey my laws, then it's no longer if you obey me. I'm going to put my spirit in you and cause you to. Because there's going to be divine impulse written inside your heart. And the power of righteousness is going to rise up within you. I'll give you desire for righteousness. And I'll give you the ability for righteousness. It's a new covenant. My spirit rises inside your hearts. And his understanding of his death was to establish this new covenant so you as the people of God don't need to fail. That new covenant's for Gentiles as well. It's for all the families of the earth. And so when Jesus brings this message that the time is fulfilled, what he's saying is that everything all the way back to the Garden of Eden 
through the whole Old Testament expectations about the power and the rule of God is now centralized in one person, Jesus Messiah, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. That's the message we're to take to this world. The King has arrived. That's the message. That's the message. Now, what does it mean it's at hand? The kingdom is at hand. What does that mean? Because if the kingdom has arrived with Jesus when he came some 2,000 years ago, how could it be say that great day has dawned when it's obvious to everybody that evil still abounds? didn't throw out the present world at all. It's still here. The world's still in a mess. There's still wars, rumors of wars. There's still famine, still pestilence. What do you mean the kingdom has arrived? Take a look. Listen to the news. What do you mean the kingdom has arrived? Jesus taught in Mark 4, I'm going to let you know about the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom. And in Mark 4, he speaks in parables, which to some people were revelation, and to other people was complete nonsense. Puzzle. They couldn't get it. What Jesus brought, now listen, this is so important. What Jesus brought was very different from the expectation people grew up with. Have you ever discovered that God's got something different in mind for you than what you anticipated? I didn't anticipate we'd be here. doesn't matter, I'm happy to be here. That God has done things different than your expectations. And what people expected in the kingdom was different than what Jesus actually brought. They expected an immediate end to the present world. They expected a total changeover. They expected throw the Romans out, throw the Gentiles out. They expected judgment to fall upon all the heathen and the Gentiles and Israel would just rule the world for its own sake. If you want to understand the New Testament, we have to learn a phrase. It's called already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. But which is it? Is it already, or is it not yet? The best way I can describe this dilemma, trying to sort this out, is if you're engaged to be married but the wedding day has not yet happened, you're between the engagement and the wedding day, are you single? How you answer that question will determine what kind of marriage counseling I need to give. (laughs) You're engaged to be married, but the wedding hasn't happened yet. Are you single? How many are just afraid to give me an answer? No, you're not single. I'll tell you why. Because you're owned by your future. Your future determines your behavior today. If you act single, believe you me, you probably won't get married. You're not single because your heart is completely devoted to your future. So when I use this phrase already, but not yet, it means the marriage hasn't taken place yet, 
but already I live with the reality of it in my heart. Follow what I'm saying? Now, to understand the kingdom as Jesus preached, you've got to understand it's already, but it's not yet. You've been proposed to, but the wedding hasn't taken place yet. Already, but not yet. And there are certain things about the kingdom, that stories about the kingdom and teaching about the kingdom and parables about the kingdom, that put the kingdom entirely in the future. About when He comes and when He appears and there's, there's judgment and there's rewards and it's all totally, some of it's in the future. And yet some of the teaching of Jesus is that the kingdom is already here. It's already present. It's already there. And there's both. It's already, but it's not yet. The truth is this. The people didn't expect the kingdom to come this way. They expected to come with a flash of thunder and all the enemies would be struck dead and that was it. What they didn't know is the kingdom of God came like a seed that was planted in the ground. Did you catch that? They thought it would come with thunder. And Jesus no. Your expectation was wrong. It comes like a seed. It's going to develop and it's going to grow. And their expectation was wrong about how it would happen. And instead of this climatic flash of thunder from the heavens destroying this present world, what happens is this. Jesus the King comes. He dies. He's buried. He's raised from the dead. He has ascended. He is exalted. And the seed has been sown. That's the kingdom. The seed has been sown. The seed's going to grow. The seed's going to develop. But the present world is still going on. It didn't go out in the flash. It's still going on. But the New Testament teaches this. This present world has been judged and is in the process of passing away. Come on. This present world, no matter what you're seeing, it has been judged and it is in the process of passing away. And as this world is in the process of passing away, the seed of the kingdom of heaven is developing and maturing and it is growing. And there's going to come a day when Jesus comes back and the kingdom has reached its fullness. When he appears, whatever your end time eschatology might be, he's coming back and history will be wrapped up. But we're in between the espousal and the wedding. We're in between the planting of the seed and the full tree. It's in the process of developing. The ministry of Jesus, as we read it in the Gospels, that the king has arrived immediately starts the process of dispelling the powers of darkness. He immediately begins to heal the sick. He immediately begins to cast out demons. He immediately begins to cleanse lepers. He immediately begins to raise the dead. And he demonstrates that he is the king and he has the authority to do these things. The good news is that the king has arrived. Now, the mission of the church, 
The mission that you and I have, when we go out to preach the gospel, what is the message that we are to give to the world? We are to give this message to the world. The king has arrived. The king has conquered. The king is alive. And through the same ministry, we are to dispel the powers of darkness in this present world because this present world is defeated, it's fading, it's in the process of passing away and we have been given the authority of the kingdom of heaven which means we, like Jesus, are to dispel the powers of darkness in people's lives. It's not just about dying and going to heaven by saying a prayer. It's about displacing the powers of darkness that are at work in people's lives. We are commissioned to heal the sick. We are commissioned to cast out demons. We are commissioned to cleanse lepers. We are commissioned to raise the dead if you want to go all that way. We are commissioned to bring the message that the king has arrived and he is in authority over all things. The king has arrived. I am interested, folks, in displacing the powers of darkness. That's the message that we are to be proclaiming. How are people supposed to respond to this? That's what we preach. How should people respond? Well, in our opening verse in Mark 1, Jesus said, The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. No, he said, The time is fulfilled. Repent. And believe the gospel. The human response to this message is people should repent and believe. Repentance throws away the old order of their lives and believing establishes a new frame of reference for their lives. But listen to this, and this is so careful because this is where we're going to go very different with tradition. Experientially, as you read the gospels, believing comes before repenting. Now, I want you to think on that. Believing comes before repenting. Because tradition has done such a number on the law that when we talk about a holy God, it becomes, oh, these rules we've got to keep. And I've tried to been teaching how the law is a revelation of God's love. Tradition tells us to repent first. Does somehow that makes us fit for believing? Or repenting somehow conditions me that makes me acceptable to God? Listen carefully. You can't earn the kingdom by repenting. I'll say it again. You can't earn the kingdom by repenting. Repenting doesn't make you, oh, God says, well, boy, now I can take that person. Luke 12.32 puts it this way. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is a gift. You cannot earn it. And repenting does not earn you the kingdom. I'll say it again. The kingdom is a gift. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Romans 2 verse 4 puts it this way. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. It does not say in your Bible that repentance leads you to the goodness of God. 
Don't get it backwards. Tradition may get it backwards, but don't get it backwards. Repentance does not lead you to the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Consider the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. That's a good one for Irish, the wee little man. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he up in the sycamore tree. I want you to note that Jesus accepted him before he repented. I want you to notice that Jesus said, I want to come to your house for a cup of tea. And I want you to see that Jesus fellowship and ate with a man named Zacchaeus and fully accepted the man as he was. And as a result of being accepted, you know what Zacchaeus does? He says, boy, I've got to get my life straight. If I have taken too much, I'm going to go fourfold back. Did you see in the case of Zacchaeus that it was the goodness of God that led him to repentance? What about the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8? What came first? Go and sin no more, then I forgive you? Or was it, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more? What came first? There is a lost world out there that is so tired of churches because they can't live up to the standards. There's a world out there that doesn't want to come to church because they feel judged and condemned when they come in. Because I just can't dress like them and I, just this unspoken thing that we're not accepted here. There's a world out there that needs to know that they are loved just the way they are. They are accepted the way they are. And in the presence of powerful love, the goodness leads to repentance. Let's not get the cart before the horse. Amen? Are you with me on that? Everything is a gift. Jesus taught about this God of the kingdom. What a strange God He is. When Jesus taught about the God of the kingdom of God, He talked about a generous God. One of mercy. A God of love. Listen to this. A God who is prodigally lavish in forgiving the undeserving. A God who is compassionate beyond comprehension. A God who is exceedingly joyful over people's restoration, which He personally seeks them out. In the Gospels, you read about a God who heals those who don't even deserve to be healed. In the Gospels, you read about Jesus healing people who aren't even grateful for being healed. But He heals them anyway. He gathers and forgives those that are outcast. Listen carefully. Everything about the kingdom of heaven is a gift. You can't earn any of it. It is a gift. You know why? Because the God of the kingdom of heaven is nobody else. I'll tell you his name. His name is Abba. Who is this mighty God? He's Abba. Who do you think he was? The Wizard of Oz? Abba. He is the most compassionate, generous, lavish you'll ever meet. It's his nature. He doesn't even care if you repent, he'll heal you anyway. Why? Because he's compassionate. Compassion. You don't have to earn anything from him. It's total 
compassion. Now, that's hardly anything like the God of the Pharisees. My goodness, their representation of God. God is a divine taskmaster. He demands perfection of all his slaves. And if you don't live up to standards, wham. Here comes Jesus with the kingdom. God's not like that. What is God like? Well, he's compassionate. So how are we supposed to live in response? What are the ethics that we live by? It's very simple. The ethics that we live by, we are grateful people. We don't follow a religious code in order to be accepted. We forgive people freely. And you know why we forgive them freely? Do you know why we do it? Do you know why? Because we've been forgiven freely. We are outlandish in the mercy we show to other people. Do you know why we're outlandish in the mercy we show to other people? Do you know why? Because God was outlandish showing mercy to me. What is, how do you behave? How do you behave in this kingdom of heaven? It's simple. You just give out freely what God gave to you freely. That's called ethics in the kingdom of heaven. It's gratitude that drives our behavior. The kingdom is especially for the poor. And when Jesus uses this word poor, it means widows and orphans, helpless, defenseless people. But it also means spiritually poor, poor in spirit, people who are in need in mercy. Listen to the message of the kingdom that Jesus brought. The year of the Lord's favor has arrived. There is forgiveness for everybody. The poor and the beggars are invited to God's great banquet. The door to the Father's house is open. People who work for only an hour are going to get a full day's wage because the landowner is ridiculously generous. All are set free from the tyranny of Satan's power and there's release from the captives, even release to people who are bound by the pharisaical wrong interpretation of the law. This is the kingdom. So how do you repent? All this is given to you free. It's the Father's good pleasure to give. It's all free. He gives it to you. Repentance comes later. So how do we repent? Well, according to Jesus, repentance means to change your mind. In practical terms, this has become a little child. Humble yourself and become dependent upon your heavenly Father. Why? Because the king of the kingdom of heaven, his name is is Abba. How do you repent? Why don't you lose yourself? Why not? Because God's found you. So you can go ahead and let go of your own life anyway. So lose yourself because God has found you. That's what repentance means. It means to enter into discipleship, to be self-sacrificing for the sake of others, not because you have to, but because you have been owned by mercy and gratitude can do nothing else. To repent means to become a child of the king because why not? His name is Abba. He's committed to your care. My goodness. He's committed to your care. And He's committed to providing for your needs. Repentance means I become like my Heavenly Father. I'm salt and I'm light, not by by my rules that I keep, and not by the traditions that I keep. I'm salt and light in simply this way. I just give other people the mercy God's given me. I just give forgiveness to other people that God's forgiven me. When we let God's life flow through us, what we receive, we give, that's what is salt and that is what is light. That's what it means to be salt, and that's what it means to be light. It's been living out this message. But people can't get that. They don't see that the kingdom is disguised in weakness and suffering. 
But listen to this. The kingdom is the power to change our hearts. There is power being released when you accept people where they are at. And in accepting people, they find the power to change. That is the message of the kingdom. And that destroys the power of Satan. That's the message of the kingdom. So what's our mandate? What's our mission as a church? The present mission of the church is just to continue what Jesus did in the Gospels. We are to dispense the kingdom. We are to displace the powers of darkness through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enable us supernaturally to do these things. We're between the times. We're between the getting engaged and getting married. The kingdom has begun. The seed's been planted. But the kingdom hasn't arrived yet in the fullness as of on the last day. But we live by the future reality. Just like someone engaged to be married lets the future control their behavior. We live by being controlled by our future. And that's what it means to live in the Spirit. We proclaim the same message Jesus did, and we proclaim the same message in the same power that He did. The role of the Holy Spirit is key to our mission. It was key to the mission of Jesus. Everything about the life of Jesus was all about the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Spirit. He was, you know, grew in the Spirit. He developed in Spirit. And He would say, if I by the Spirit of God cast out demons, then you know the kingdom of heaven has come nigh to you. How do people know that the kingdom has arrived is when we start acting in the spirit. That's what brings the kingdom. You know that the kingdom is nigh you when I by the spirit of God cast out devils. When you read about Jesus preaching the message about the kingdom, it was always miracles and casting out devils and praying for the sick. The kingdom has arrived. And when we can show the compassion of God, the mercy of God, don't judge anybody, but accept everybody, love everybody, no matter who they are and what they look like and no matter what their background is, and just have total forgiveness and total embrace and total acceptance with the power of God, then the kingdom has come and that will drive them to repentance. That's the message that we're supposed to take. That's the method that the New Testament teaches We're to proclaim the kingdom to all the poor, naturally, spiritually, until the appearing of Jesus. That's our mission. When we're going to get involved in outreach, I don't want good ideas. I want Holy Ghost initiative. I want the Holy Spirit to speak. I want the Holy Spirit to say, that's where I want you to go. That's who I want you to talk to. I want to recover Pentecost. I want to recover the reality of the Spirit of God. Because the message we have is that the king has arrived. The king has arrived. That is our mission. That is what we're called to do. That's the gospel. We're to preach to the world. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.